I want to talk in this series about the church. You see, I believe that the church should be a place where hurting and broken people can come or we go to them and they can find healing in the love of God because they have experienced us loving them just as Christ would love them, that we're going to sit with them just as Christ would sit with them. There's a verse that I sort of want us to be thinking about because I believe this verse is the verse of the church, really. It's a simple verse, and you probably have heard it before, whether you've been in church or not, or if you haven't even read your Bible. Paul's talking about the church and what does it mean to be a part of a church body, a church family. And he says that we need to rejoice with those who rejoice and we need to weep with those who weep. This isn't Paul just giving a a good suggestion, a positive thought. This is reality. If we want to be the church that God has called us to be, we need to be doing two equally important tasks. We need to be rejoicing and we need to be weeping. We need to know when to to smile and give somebody a high five and do a celebration, dance with them. But we also need to know when we need to tear up and we need to hug them and we need to cry with them. We need to rejoice with those who rejoice and we need to weep with those who weep. I know from my own personal experience that you're sitting in one of those moments right now. You're either rejoicing or you're weeping. You see, we're either going through a trial or we're in the midst of a trial or we're struggling to to get unstuck or we're feeling the pain and the anguish of being alone, or we have just gotten out of that and we feel that a new day is coming and we're, we're excited about a new day and we lift up our eyes and we're looking forward to what God is going to do. But all of us need to understand, even though that's our story, God calls each of us to know, even in the midst of our own pain or in the midst of our own joy, we need to enter into the life of someone else and we need to either be rejoicing with them or weeping with them. And what we're going to do today is we're going to look at one of my favorite characters in Scripture. His name is Job. And if you're looking at it for the first time, you may think, it looks like Job to me, but no, it's Job. And hopefully you've heard the story of Job, but if not, we want to turn to Job chapter 1, and then I'm going to give you principles that we can learn from Job on how we sit with one another in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of loss and pain. And Job is one of those characters, he's, he's a hero, he's a biblical hero who experiences much loss, but he holds on to his faith and he struggles in that journey and he teaches us that life is messy and difficult and sometimes life is unjust, but in the end, God is there and God is sovereign and God is good. So Job chapter 1, verse 1, and I want to make sure we all understand what Job is going through and we understand his unjust suffering and The writer of Job, this is sort of like a big poem or a big story that he wants us to understand 
that Job is going to go through unjust suffering. Not just any type of suffering, but unjust suffering. And I think when it comes to suffering, all of us understand life is going to be full of suffering. But when we struggle, we struggle with unjust suffering. When things happen that shouldn't happen that are out of our control. So Job chapter 1 verse 1 says this. There was a man. I love it. There was a man. Just like you and me. He was an ordinary person. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright. Basically it's saying you need to understand the story. He was a good dude. He was a righteous dude. He, he did what was right and he's not going to deserve what happens. It says one who feared God. And he turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. So doesn't even list their names, but he had ten children. And these ten children are very important to him. It says, there were born to him these seven sons and, and three daughters. And he possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 um, yoke of oxen and 500 female donkeys and very many servants so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east you know sometimes I want to say this, this is like Bill Gates but it, it, it's more than that it, it's, it's more like uh, True Cathy that, that owned Chick-fil-A or somebody that owned, the guy that owns Hobby Lobby he's a righteous dude has a lot of money and things are going really well for him and it says that his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, notice this, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. So get this, he's offering ten sacrifices. He, he's praying for all of his kids. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So setting the stage here, here's a righteous man, a blessed man who has experienced everything that this life had to offer. He was rich, he was successful, but more important than that, he trusted God and he lived for God and he worshiped God. Now verse 6 says, now there was a day, it's a horrible day, but it's, it's a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Now, I know you're going to have a lot of questions, just put those questions on the back burner to when you go home or this week and want to study this. It says, the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? I'm like, wait, don't do this. this. This is my fear, to be honest with you, of being a pastor or being a Christian or being trying to do what is right. It's like, okay, God, don't point me out. I just want to stay hidden. He says, have you considered my servant Job? And there's none like him on, on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and says, did Job fear God for no reason? Have you put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed 
the work of his hands and his possessions, and you have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. I don't know about you, but if I was the Lord, I would be pretty upset at this point. I would just, boop, I'd look at him, and he would evaporate to nothing, but that doesn't happen. And notice what it says. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now without reading the story, hopefully you know the rest of the story. So his sons and daughters are celebrating and then all of a sudden he hears this news. He hears this horrible news. All your oxen is gone. They've been wiped out. And then he gets, next news, he gets all your sheep and your servants, they're gone. And then the next moment he hears not only the sheep and the servants, but all your camels and all your servants are gone. Just imagine, boom, after moment after moment after moment, he's like, everything that I own and possess, my business, I'm going to go bankrupt, I've lost everything. And then he hears the news that none of us want to hear. Not only is one of his children gone, but all ten, his seven sons and his three daughters are all gone. They're no more. And what does Job do? Job does what is the most amazing thing. He falls on his knees and he worships God, and he says, blessed be the name of the Lord. He gives and he takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I entered this world naked, and I'm going to leave naked. God can give and God can take away, but I'm going to continue to trust him. Job is hurting. Not only is Job hurting, but his wife is hurting. And that is where I want us to pick up this story because I think most of us are familiar with Job chapter 1. It's Job chapter 2 that I believe is the chapter that we need to understand what it means to be the body of Christ, what it means to be a friend, what it means to to come alongside and to sit with those who are hurting. We don't know what the timeline is. But chapter 2, verse 1 says, Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And I'm like, oh man, this this isn't going to go well. It didn't go well last time, but Job kept his faith and worshiped God. Verse 2 says, again, the Lord says, where have you been? Satan answered him, I'm going to and fro the earth and I'm walking up and down it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Because Job did what I told you he would do. He was going to to keep his faith and his integrity, and he's going to continue to worship me. And he said that he still holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Verse 4 says, then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, flesh for flesh, All that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. 
Job had just gotten four reports, four bad reports, and now he's going to get two more situations. This is sort of like reliving the most horrible day in your life. It's like Groundhog Day. It's coming back again and again and again and again. What's, what's going to happen here? So verse 7 says, So Satan went out from his presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. So literally he had all these sores on his body, ulcers. Many think it was leprosy that he had and he was in pain and he was hurting. And I don't know if you've ever been there where you just want to scrape off the scabs and you want to deal with the pain that is in your body. That, that's where Job is at. And before we judge the wife, we need to understand something. She is in pain and she is broken as well. She just lost her ten children. She had just lost all of her possessions as well. She had lost her reputation. In all likelihood, she had lost all of her friends. It was just her and her husband. They're homeless. They're hurting. They're in pain. And now her husband is just not a good sight to look at. And his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? It's interesting. This is the word that we looked at Last Sunday, that we need to hold fast to the hope that we have in Christ. And I talked about being a spiritual ninja warrior. And Job holds fast because he has a relationship with God. And he can hold fast. And he has hope. And so she says, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as the one of a foolish woman. He doesn't call her a foolish woman. He says, you're speaking as one who is a foolish woman. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. It's very interesting. Job is in pain. And this is very important for us who are men, who are husbands, who are going through a midst of a very difficult situation. It still requires us to keep our faith and to know how to encourage and support and speak truth and love to our wife in the midst of times when she is hurting and you're hurting. Now these next three verses are the heart of what we want to talk about. It says, now when Job's three, three friends heard of all the evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. There was Eliphaz, the, the Tamanite. There was Beldad, the Shulalite, and there was Zophar, the Naamnite. And it says they made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. And they sat with him. I underline that in my Bible. I encourage you to underline it or highlight it. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. Seven days and seven nights they sat with him on the ground. And notice, no one spoke a word to him. For they saw that his suffering was very great. 
Now, if you have not been paying attention up to this moment, I would encourage you to refocus your attention because God is going to call you to be one of these friends and to reach out and to encourage someone. But you also want to listen because there's going to be a time in your life when you're going to need a friend like one of these three friends that came to see Job. Here's the first principle that we need to learn, and I'm going to go through these very fast, and I would encourage you on the back of your your program, I would encourage you to, to write these down because these are principles straight from the Word of God that I think will help us. Here's the first principle we need to know. No invitation is needed to sit with someone. Let me repeat it. No invitation is needed to sit with someone. I know that the Sit With Me series is requiring you to invite someone to sit with you, but deep down there is no invitation to invite someone to sit with you like there is no invitation needed to go and to sit with someone who is hurting. Now let's just think about this for a second. All of his servants, all of his family, they're all gone. And these people live in in a faraway land. It's not like they were next door neighbors. They, They had to have a plan and they had to meet somewhere together. They had to meet like in St. Louis to come over to maybe Harrisonville. They had to to have a plan and they were in separate places. How did they know they needed to go to Job? And the only conclusion I can come up with is that God asked them to go. Because there would have been nobody who could go back and spread the word for Job. And so it had to be God himself. And what I have discovered is that often I get this, this thought, this idea, this spoken word, however you think God speaks to you, that sometimes I need to go and I need to sit with someone. I've heard the news, I've heard the story that they're hurting, that they're broken, that they're going through a difficult time. And I need to go and I need to sit with them. Now I know from my own personal experience, and I don't want to share too many of my stories, but I know from personal experience when we have gone through loss, when we have gone through hardship, when we had gone through difficulty, often people didn't show up unannounced. In fact, the opposite often happened. No one ever showed up. I remember after we had lost Mariah and 11 months earlier we had lost Mar- Marcus. And we, when we lost Marcus, we had the funeral actually in two different churches. But we had the funeral at church. It was on a Sunday morning. And we let up balloons in to go up to heaven, and it was really quite emotional. And then 11 months later, we had the funeral, and it was more of a private gravesite this time for Mariah. And when we had gotten back, we just sort of said to people, you know, we know you want to bring us meals. We know you maybe want to send us flowers and cards and all of that. 
But in reality, we, we don't want some of that. What we want is people just to come and to sit with us. Or if they want to, to cook us a meal, not to just send us a meal, but to come over and eat with us or to invite us over to their house. And it was very interesting. People didn't respond to that very well. In fact, I don't know of one person that ever just even came by to sit with us. In fact, they, they ran from us. They avoided us. In fact, sometimes when they saw us at church, it was hard for them to do as their pastor. But sometimes when they saw Michelle or, or maybe even Micah or McKenzie, they, they, they would just turn the other way because they didn't want to have the conversation because it was too painful. It was too painful for them to think about not only losing one baby, to lose two babies and to, to do two funerals for your children within a year's time. But if we're going to be the church, if we're going to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice, there's no invitation needed, my friends. We need to go. Because that's what friends do that's what that's what christian friends do that's what people do they show up unannounced and they sit with people and they join with them in their suffering here's something that may be very helpful for you no words need to be spoken to sit with someone no words need to be spoken to sit with someone Again, I, I, I can say all the trials and difficulties I've gone through, I can't even remember one piece of advice or encouragement or comfort that somebody spoke to me that was positive or helpful or that helped me. I, I can't remember one piece of advice. In fact, the opposite often happened when people spoke. It actually poured gasoline on the fire. I could tell you story after story of all, it was done with good intentions, but they were negative comments. They weren't helpful comments. They, weren't, they didn't produce any hope. They produced more sadness, more discouragement. And what we're talking about this morning is what Job's three friends did. And notice what it says. It says, and when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And in verse 13, and they sat with him on the ground, and no one spoke a word to him. Seven days and seven nights. I do remember, though, people in our lives who reached out to us. I remember Dave and Rebecca Mervar when we were going through a difficult time with the adoption of Micah. And we went and we... We went in the process, and time had elapsed, and we went and we did sort of a, an out-of-state adoption process, and we tried to speed up the process that was taking a little too long. And many of our friends, many of our church friends, they, they were discouraging us and just saying, just give up on Micah, or just give up on the process. And again, I don't remember anything Dave and Rebecca Mervar said, but they got in a in a car with us. Actually, they drove us and they, they went with us for about a 10-hour trip in the middle of the night to help us in the process of the adoption of Micah. I remember, I don't even know the names of these people, but after we went through two years of tragedy, 
There was a family, a Christian family from Fort Wayne, Indiana. That's where we were when we were going through a lot of this uh, suffering. And they opened up their home for one month for us. They gave us their home, their condo in Florida so that we could heal and be restored. I remember... Just being there and having people come into my life who who didn't say anything, but they just hugged me. And I'll talk a little bit more about that. So no words need to be spoken to sit with someone. Here's a third principle. What we see is more important than what we say. What we see is much more important than what we say. You see, we... We often avoid going somewhere because we say, well, I just don't know what to say. I, I don't know, what, what, I, what can I say that can even help the situation? And I just heard you, Pastor Mark, and I've heard this before, that sometimes you have good intentions and you say the wrong thing. That's why we need to understand this principle. It's more about looking with our eyes and seeing what is going on than what we say. And we're not just talking about loss here. We're we're talking about any situation where someone is hurting. Maybe a divorce. Maybe a loss of a job. It may be a loss of a dream. It may be a major disappointment with God. It may be financial difficulties. It may be they had to declare bankruptcy. Something may be going on. It's important for us not to get there and give the word of advice, but to open up our eyes and to see Notice again in verse 12, it says, and when they saw him from a distance, that means they went with the intention of looking and seeing what was going on and making observations. Notice how verse 13 ends. It says that they saw that his suffering was very great. I talk often about how we need to be self-aware. We need to be self-aware of ourselves and what we're saying and what we're doing. That's not what I'm talking about here. We need to be others aware now. We need to be looking at the other person who is going through a very difficult time and observing what is going on. One of the things that I learned maybe about 15 years ago is to look at a person's eyes. When you look at a person's eyes, I I like to look at my children's eyes. I like to look at other people's eyes. When you look at their eyes, you can see whether there is pain, whether there is hope, whether there is discouragement, whether there's encouragement, whether there's comfort going on. You need to be able to look at their eyes. But you also need to be able to just look at the situation because something is going on. Notice what they said when they saw him from a distance and didn't recognize him. And it caused them to raise their voices and to weep and they tore their robes. Why? Because what they saw was a man who was physically hurting. He was emotionally hurting. He was spiritually hurting. He was relationally hurting. And they knew that he was financially hurting. And they were able to see that. Sit with me requires us to understand what we see is more important than what we say. Job, in all likelihood, was homeless. He was sitting by himself and he was weeping. And it didn't cause them to say, oh, what am I going to say to Job? 
it caused them to say, I'm just going to sit with him and I'm going to be patient and I'm going to wait until the opportunity comes to say something. Here's a principle that I've learned in ministry as well. Sometimes we need to take someone with us. Sometimes we need to take someone with us. I, I learned this even before I was doing a lot of ministry. My father-in-law is a pastor. And I remember sometimes he was going to face a very difficult situation. And I said, hey, I'll go with you. Uh, the reason I would say I'll go with you is because I understood that a lot of times in my own thought, in my own ministry early on, I was just like, I was scared to death of having to go talk to somebody who has a police officer there because the spouse is going through a divorce and they're going to have to clean out everything out of the house. Or having to go because someone has died at the hospital and the spouse needs to go or the parent needs to go and verify that that is really their loved one. And, or sometimes someone has just got arrested and you got to go and you need to to sit with somebody who's going through a very difficult time. It's not easy to do it by yourself. And again, I think this is God's wisdom. God, I think, notified three of his friends. Actually, there's more. We learned that there's a younger friend at the end of Job. So maybe, there, there, maybe there's five or six guys that go with these three friends. And they go together to bring comfort and sympathy. You see... Sometimes you just can't go it alone. And sometimes it's helpful to have an extra set of eyes to see maybe what you are missing. When we sit with people, sometimes it's just not wise to go it alone. Here's something that I really think is important for us to understand. Sometimes friends, not family, need to sit with us. Let me repeat, sometimes friends, not family, need to sit with us. And I understand what type of community I'm speaking to. There's a lot of families, and sometimes this is referred to as a family church. And if anybody has ever gone through a difficult time, you know that this principle is true. I love my family, and hopefully they're not listening to me online right now, but let me tell you, I don't know if my family was ever able to come alongside and to comfort me and sympathize with me. And maybe it has something to do that, that I was the baby of the family and I was the youngest, so obviously I'm the stupid one, right? Right? And everything that I was going through was because of silly decisions that I made. But let me tell you, this is a true principle. Sometimes family is not what you need. You need a friend. You need somebody, maybe in this church body, but maybe just another Christian who attends another church to sit with you and to, to listen and to see and observe what you're going through. We need friends, and sometimes family aren't able to do that. I want to go back, look at what Job's wife said to him. Do you still hold fast your integrity, 
curse God and die. I do want to say something to spouses, and I want to say something to family members. Don't, especially if you're hurting, don't make the matters worse by the words that you say to another family member or to your spouse. Sometimes the best thing for you to do is just to keep quiet, just like the friends. Because it, it, sometimes it's hard to hear it from a family member. Just like it's hard for us to live out our Christian faith in front of our family sometimes. Sometimes it's hard to hear tough truths from a family member. And we need friends. And sometimes I would encourage you to Go and seek others out rather than your family and stop putting the expectation on your family to bring the healing and comfort that maybe God wants to use someone outside your family to minister to you. Sometimes the one who suffers stinks badly. Sort of like a junior high boy that hasn't figured out deodorant yet, but it's even worse than that. You see, if you read the Old Testament, and especially if you will notice some of the romantic scenes, it talks about them using spices and oils and perfumes. Why? Because the body odor was really bad. But I want to tell you that this one who suffers, Job, he was even in a worse off situation. Because when it talks about the ashes that he had on him and it talks about him sitting on the ground, the Hebrew is describing he was actually sitting by a junk pile. And junk piles then, they, 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 they would burn them. And these were the ashes from the junk pile. And he's sitting there and he's probably bleeding and broken and hurting. And the smell and the odor was really bad. And sometimes... Some situations are just unbearable, and maybe they don't physically stink, but they emotionally stink. I remember when I wanted to be not like Job, and I just wanted to curse, and I just wanted to say, this is a bunch of, you know what? And I told some elders when I was going through a tough time, I said, can somebody just say this is a bunch of... And sometimes the suffering that you're going through is unbearable. But you need friends, and if we're going to be that friend, we need to, to approach somebody and understand that the situation is difficult, but we still need to be there and we need to sit with them, just like Job's three friends did. Sometimes we need to step out of our comfort zones and cry with someone. Now, one of the things you probably don't know about this story, if, unless you've done deep research, but these three friends that came were probably kings or they were princesses. Or they were like the three wise men that came to Jesus' birth. These were probably people of nobility, of money, of wealth, of success. In fact, some commentators say they were actually kings and when they saw him notice they raised their voices and they wept and they tore their robes and they sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven and, and what it reminds me of 
is that they had to step out of their comfort zones. They had to, to get rid of the, the things that they felt comfortable with, not just physically, but emotionally and relationally. And they needed to stretch themselves. What does that look like for us in our culture? I'm, I think it's hugs and tears. Again, when we went through some healing process, we went to Colorado and we went to a place called Sunscape in Colorado Springs and then we went to a place called Big Lake. And I'll never forget, we went there to heal when we went to Big Lake and there was a guy there and again, his name, I can't even really remember his name, I think it was Bob and Bob had gone through some enormous pain and he had lost a daughter after finding out that she was sexually abused by someone in his own ministry. And he felt horrible. And as soon as we got out of the car, he came over and he hugged me. And he hugged Michelle and he was crying in tears. And he was just hugging and hugging and hugging. And I'm like, this is weird. And he kept on hugging and he kept on hugging. He didn't say one word. He just hugged me and then he cried. And there was something that went through my body like like a healing. And he was able to restore a part of me that says, it's all right. It's all right for me to cry. It's all right for me to feel broken. It's all right for me to feel pain because God has sent someone to minister to me. And I know you may be saying, Mark, I'm not a hugger. Well, too bad. Sometimes you need to hug someone. And it's not just when they've gone through a loss. Maybe it's a broken relationship. Or maybe you just know that they are flat out hurting right now. And you need to surround them. And you need to hug them. And they need to see your tears. And they need to be able to know that you care. And that you're willing to sit with them and cry with them. A couple more principles and we'll be done. Sometimes we need to trust God versus play God. This is the whole point of the book of Job. You see, Job doesn't know the rest of the story. The wife doesn't know the rest of the story. The friends don't know the rest of the story. The readers of Job know the full story. They know it, that he didn't do anything wrong. That God actually was having a conversation with Satan. And, and God was allowing this to happen because it was sort of a, a test, but I don't even want to say it was a test. It was an opportunity for Job to trust God, even in the midst of a very difficult situation. And Job was able to trust God. Too often, we want to play God. We want to fix the situation. We want to heal the situation. We want to give the advice that we think they need to hear. We want it just to end, and we want everything to go back to normal. But, but let me tell you, things don't go back to normal easily. What it goes to is trusting God and taking again that grip and holding on to our faith and holding on that God is in control and he knows what he is doing. We need to resist the temptation to play God. We need to resist the temptation. Because this is what happens when we try to play God. Sometimes our good intentions quickly, quickly change, and we hurt more than help. 
Job's three friends went with good intentions to comfort and to provide sympathy and to provide encouragement. But they had a problem, the same problem I have and the same problem you probably have. They couldn't keep their mouth shut. And suddenly they became prosecutors. And they became these evil attorneys who wanted to take and destroy Job. And they wanted to kick him when he was down and say, Job, this has to be because of your sin. It has to be because you did something wrong. It has to be. Don't let that happen. If God lays upon your heart to go and sit with someone, be careful. Don't let the good intentions suddenly turn bad. Again, I, I, could, I could stand up here today and I could tell you all the statements and questions and, and things that people threw my way and Michelle's way that all had good intentions. But they stung and they hurt and they brought more pain and and they brought more confusion. One of, one of my friends who had passed away that I was talking to him one time about the book of Job. And he said, he said Mark, <laughs> the book of Job could be three chapters if everyone would have just shut up. If they would have just trusted God, not tried to play God, but if they just would have left the good intentions. I mean, how nice would it have been? Verse 13, and they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was great. They saw that his suffering was great. And then chapter 42 God, you are sovereign, you're good, and I'm going to trust you. I'm going to end with something here that probably maybe doesn't fit, but it's true. Sometimes sitting in silence with someone doesn't remove the pain. I, you know, one of the things that I've had to learn in my life is, is you just can't have the principle A plus B. You, you do something and then you're going to get the right result. Because often when you do the right thing, you don't get the right result. And his friends, they, they came, good intentions, as we said. They sat with him. And before they even spoke a word, notice chapter 3, verse 1. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. I just want to give a fair warning and I just want to tell you when you go and sit with someone, especially someone who is grieving, because in grief there's going to be anger, there's going to be frustration, there's going to be laziness, there's going to be confusion, there's going to be hurt. And I actually believe it is healthy to cry out to God because that's how healing occurs. But if you think you can go now, oh, I've learned the answer. I'll just go and sit with someone for seven days and seven nights. No, no, probably don't do that. That's probably not a good idea. But go and sit with them and understand I'm in this journey with you. And I'm going to be here in the midst of your pain. And I'm going to hug you and I'm going to cry with you. And I'm going to be your friend. I started with Romans 12. 
and I just want you to take this verse with you. A friend loves at all times. A friend loves at all times. I, I would say a Christian friend really, really, really loves at all times. And a Christian brother and sister is there in times of adversity, in times of trials, in times of suffering. And if we're going to be the church that God has called us to be, it goes beyond inviting people to sit with us. Yes, I want you to invite people to sit with you. But it goes beyond that to the heart of the matter. The way God comforts us, that he talks about, that he comforts those in need, is he takes those who have been hurting and have been comforted by God so that they can comfort one another. Let us be the friends that God has called us to be. And let us trust him and trust his plan. And when God gives us that nudging to, to go and to reach out to someone, let us do it for the glory of God.